Please have a seat. We'll call file number 2022-0260, Drew Wrigley in his official capacity as Attorney General for the State of North Dakota versus the Honorable Bruce A. Romanek, Judge of the District Court, South Central Judicial District et al. I'll note the appearance of Matthew uh, Segsveen on behalf of the Attorney General as well as an appearance by Courtney Titus. I'll also note uh, arguing today on behalf of the Appellees is Mitra uh, Mezadiza or Mezadiza and uh, appearing is Christina Sambor. Mr. Uh, Sagsveen, you represent the appellant in this matter, so whenever you're re ready, you can approach the podium and begin your argument. this court to assert its original supervisory jurisdiction and vacate the district court's preliminary injunction of section 12.1-31-12. The court has already granted the state's petition in part after the district court's first order in joining 12.1-31-12 because the district court did not analyze all the factors for a preliminary injunction. Specifically, the district court did not analyze whether Red River Women's Clinic had a substantial probability of success on the board. Now, the district court's supplemental findings, which determined Red River Women's Clinic has a substantial probability of success on the merits, also constitute an abuse of discretion, but for different reasons. The district court misconstrued the law applicable to preliminary injunctions and applied the wrong test to determine Red River had a substantial probability of success on the merits. The district court's application of the wrong test led to an erroneous determination that Red River had a substantial probability of success on the merits of its due process challenge without determining whether the due process clause of the Constitution protects the right to an abortion. Red River's due process challenge is the central question of this litigation. The district court's attempt to shore up its analysis by applying strict scrutiny and rational basis does not cure the court's abuse of discretion and should not be given any weight in this matter. Why doesn't it cure it, counsel? If the, if the judge just assumes the first part of the test and applies the second two parts, or one or the other, alternatively. When you say assumes the first part of the test? It, 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 in other words, if... if it addresses the constitutional issue and finds there is a constitutional right, it applies strict scrutiny, and if it doesn't find constitutional right, it applies rational basis. If the court just jumps to the second and answers both strict scrutiny and rational basis, what does it matter? The point I'm going to make today in my argument, um, Mr. Chief Justice, is that even if the state, even if the court goes past strict scrutiny and gets into rational basis. The important issue there is that, the, is that Red River, the respondent in this case, never raised rational basis to the district court in its motion for a preliminary injunction. The district court did not have that information before it for the record. The district court's analysis in its supplemental findings was, was completely on its own and not based upon any briefing by, by the respondent in this matter. So we should remand? I'm not suggesting you, the court remand that issue. I'm suggesting the district, the respondent didn't even raise it. Therefore, to the extent the, the statute passes strict scrutiny or strict scrutiny is not applicable to it because abortion isn't a fundamental right protected by the Constitution, you don't even get to rational basis because we're talking about the district court's injunction in this matter. That argument was never raised by the respondent which means they didn't meet their burden of proof on that point. So, so I wanted, I'd like to talk a little bit about process. Uh, should this court have a concern that we're getting to the merits of the action before the district court has built its record? 
And really what this case is going to turn on the way it's been presented to us is the ultimate decision whether there's a constitutional right. And that well, is almost like getting advice from this court in a district court proceeding, a process we wouldn't allow in another circumstance. So should we be worried about the, the procedure or process that's happening in this case? Well, the state's petition is nearly entirely about the process. The state has addressed the merits of this issue in its brief, but the fact of the matter is the district court didn't address the, the full process by not by omitting the merits factor in the first order that it issued regarding a preliminary injunction. And well, sorry to interrupt, Mr. Sagsheim. Let's cut to the chase. What, what's the difference in the, where the case we have before us right now, what's the difference in that and having the parties just brief the merits to us and make a decision? Isn't it the same? Good, I think that's a good question because this, this is a unique situation. I, I'm not aware of a situation where the, the district court has had to entertain the merits, the merits factor. Well, doesn't that happen any time that there's a disputed question of law that underlies an injunction? Now, I'm, I'm, I'm looking out for this court and what the precedent might be outside of this case. And it seems that any time we have a disputed issue of law, the state's argument would land that dispute in front of us on a writ before the district court does its work. I think that that's correct. The state has, has argued that merits is the most important factor in a, in preliminary injunction analysis when a state statute is being challenged. So I, the state agrees with you on that point. And it does present a, a unique situation, especially in this case where the principal argument, the principal motion that the, that a respondent made in this point was based, was a motion for a temporary restraining order, which eventually got converted into a preliminary injunction. But there was no additional briefing on that point. So the record on that, on that original motion is fairly thin. The state had seven days to respond to that, to that, to that motion. So it is a unique situation where the court is being presented with the full, the full merits, but also limited briefing, limited record. Mr. Sexton, we've talked a bit now about the record and the complaint here seeks a declaratory judgment that the abortion statute at issue here is unconstitutional. So as I read that, that's a facial challenge. Generally doesn't turn on facts in the record. So I'm wondering what your view is as to what, what facts are likely to emerge at trial or what's, what's to be tried here that will change it? I don't know that there are any facts to be considered at trial regarding the facial challenge. There may be, there may be additional issues regarding affirmative defenses and consideration regarding from the medical community regarding the extent to which affirmative defenses provides some comfort level for physicians. We just haven't really gone down that path yet, but the bottom line is you're, you're correct. Is that this is a facial challenge against 12.1-31-12. That's dependent upon a constitutional finding in some ways, whether abortion is a protected right under the, under the constitution. So based upon this court's past history regarding facial challenges, there should not be any facts that the court would need to develop an opinion regarding, regarding this issue. But as I, as I suggest, as I started out, this, this issue is really about the district court's abuse of discretion with its preliminary injunction. Principally, the district court did not apply the substantial probability of success on the merits factor. Have we ever defined what that phrase means? This court has not defined, has provided a specific definition of substantial probability of success on the merits. And that's... We picked that up on the FM asphalt case from data phase out of the 8th circuit. Has the 8th circuit defined it? Or was it defined when we picked it up as part of the background law? The data phase case is an interesting case because when the court, when the court heard that argument, it, its opinion is an en banc decision. And in that decision, it's, the court is grappling with these two tests that it has announced because there was, 
confusion in the ACER circuit regarding these two tests. And ultimately, the court came around to these four factors, but did it define it specifically? No. Did it define the word substantial? No. And that's where the district court finds ambiguity is what is substantial? The ambiguity. Hasn't that been a problem throughout the circuits that they're all struggling with the definition? I don't think that the A circuit is struggling with that anymore because when the district, when the A circuit has addressed arguments addressing specifically the issue of challenges to statutes, it has always come back to the issue of substantial probability of success means it's more, it's not, we're not going to be limited by this concept of 50%. It's more than 50%. It's a substantial probability of success. And under the A circuit's analysis, if it's substantially, if it's less than 50%, then the inquiry ends? Or do we balance the other factors? I think that the A circuit has used the fair chance of success standard and it's less of a mathematical percentage inquiry and they're going to analyze the merits factors with, in conjunction with the three factors and analyze the full equity of the arguments that are made before it. But when it comes to a statutory challenge, it is substantial probability of success on the merits and the movement has a much higher burden than any other motion, any other challenge that's brought forward in a preliminary injunction. If it's a pure question of law and the district court's called upon to look to whether there's a substantial probability of success, does the fact that it requires four votes out of five here to invalidate a statute play into that probability? I think that that's an interesting question, Your Honor. It does, I think, play into that. And the fact of the matter is the district court has already entertained this point in part and arguably the lack of a consensus on that issue, whether abortion is a fundamental right protected by the Constitution, is precedent in and of itself. There is no controlling decision on that point and that carries weight and it should be recognized by the district court. The fact of the matter is because there is no precedent, no controlling precedent on that point, the district court should not make a decision that carries the movement's burden forward. The fact of the matter is the preliminary injunction should just be denied. But maybe that doesn't answer your question. It just seems it's hard to discern a difference between district court assessing probability of success on the merits in a purely legal question, which looks like forecasting what this court will do with a legal question, as opposed to where there are facts at issue that might change the result at trial and forecasting what one party or the other is likely to prove. I don't know if you've thought about that, the difference between a fact question at trial and a legal question for the court. Well, I think that the preliminary injunction factors does put the district court in a unique position to kind of, to forecast that. But typically there is, this is a unique situation though, because there is a preceding opinion where this district court has failed to come to a consensus. I think that that's a rare situation where the district court is not frequently confronted with. Frequently there is controlling precedent, there is a standard that is to be applied, but in this case there really isn't. The standard is that there is no precedent, there is no controlling precedent. And in all fairness and respect to the district court, I don't know that the district court is wrong to say, I don't have an opinion, I don't know what the opinion is until the Supreme Court rules. But that doesn't mean that the respondent carries their burden in their motion for a preliminary injunction. The preliminary injunction should fail until such time as the Supreme Court makes a decision on that point. So you're saying there can never be an injunction in a case where there isn't controlling precedent? Does that boil it down? What I'm saying is in this case, the absence of controlling precedent on the issue of whether abortion is protected under the Constitution is in itself controlling because there is no consensus and the plaintiffs cannot meet their burden of proof on that issue. Mr. Stegman, does the lack of a controlling precedent involve the history of North Dakota and abortion? If I understand your question, does the lack of controlling precedent involve the history of abortion in North Dakota? Was it prohibited until Roe v. Wade? 
abortion was prohibited in North Dakota with limited exceptions since statehood until 1972, Your Honor. After Roe v. Wade, the state enacted the Abortion Control Act, which put into place additional restrictions on, on abortion. And those restrictions have remained in, in place in large part. Um, some have been modified. Some what was the law before Roe v. Wade in North Dakota? I'm sorry. I, what did the law provide on abortion before Roe v. Wade in North Dakota? The law criminalized abortions but had some, some exceptions. It what? The law, did, the law criminalized abortion but provided some exceptions for abortion since statehood until Roe v. Wade. Mr. Seisman, what effect, if any, did the 1984 amendment to the state constitution have on this issue? Are you speaking of the amendment that, that modified the gender? Yes. I don't think that that amendment had had any modification, had any impact on, on this issue. And, and the reason is, is this is why, is under the rules of statutory construction, I, if the rules of statutory construction that the legislature typically relies upon are also applied to the Constitution, which generally is the case, um, when, this, when the law or the Constitution uses the word he, it also includes she. I think the fact of the matter, the fact that the, the Constitution was amended to address that point is not substantively significant in the context of this, of a constitutional interpretation. And when did that gender-neutral application come into play? That he equals she? Are you talking about the, the statute? Well, I mean, when, when the Constitution was written, did it contemplate that women had all these rights that the men had? Or is that some later construction for political purposes? Your Honor, I apologize that I didn't, I did not look at the effective date of the statute regarding that point. So it's possible that it, that that came into effect after the, the state, um, the laws were adopted and the state came into the union. And um, I apologize for not having that information, but it's. Under the rules of statutory construction, that is that is the mechanism for for balancing that issue out. One more question for you on the on the merits question related to, to earlier comments. So, Article One, Section One refers to a right of enjoying and defending life and liberty. So you mentioned the state having had statutes going back to territorial days prohibiting abortion with some exceptions. My understanding from the briefing is that. At least one of those was when it's necessary to pr preserve her life, similar to the exception that's, that's in the statute at issue here. And so my question for you is whether this constitutional text in history might support a right to abortion in what amounts to self-defense situations, and if so, whether an affirmative defense is sufficient when, for example, self-defense is a defense where the defendant has a much lower burden at trial. I understand the other side's argument to be that an affirmative defense is insufficiently protective and an exception or a, or a pure defense would be more appropriate, and I'd like you to respond to that. So if I understand your question, if you allow me to repeat it, is whether or not the Section 1 of the Constitution might provide a fundamental right for a limited abortion procedure after a certain event, such as um, an assault or for the purposes of where carrying the pregnancy would endanger the mother's life such that it's effectively self-defense against the unborn child. I think I'd have to fall back on, on the fact that the, the Constitution, as has been discussed in MKB, does not provide a fundamental right to an abortion. There are there might be unique situations where, such as to protect the life of the mother, such as rape or incest, where the law recognizes unique and diff emotionally difficult situations for abortion. But those so those are, would be statutory rights, not constitutional rights. Is what I'm you're sorry? Saying. Are you saying that there may be, the legislature may recognize a statutory right, but no constitutional right? is to be recognized? I'm saying that regardless of the, the, the difficulty of the situation, 
that has been described in the, in the question that's been proposed to me, that based upon this court's analysis and MKB, and the long-standing discussion of due process of the due process clause in the context of this court's opinion, this court has not recognized a fundamental right to abortion under under any situation. Mr. Savion, I'm going to drag you back to where, where I was headed. Um, I want to make sure I understand the state's position. If uh, there is no substantial or a less than 50% substantial likelihood of success, less than 50% likelihood of success on the merits, do we ignore the other three factors? Are they irrelevant? Or are they still in play? For the purposes of, of the state's the state's argument in this case, where we're, we're defending, the state is defending a, a state statute. The remaining factors, if if the court finds for substantial that the the movement failed to satisfy their burden on the merits factor, those remaining factors are are irrelevant. They're they're not to be considered by the district court or this court because the decision on the merits is over an overriding merits decision that. Carries the day. With respect, if the court Mr. determined, Mr. Sexton, you are on your reserve time. I understand, and maybe I can pick that up. And Thank you. Thank you. State requests that the, that the court vacate the district court's injunction in this case and remand the case back to the district court. Thank you for your initial argument, Mr. Sexton. Ms. Medizia, Please feel free to adjust the podium to a height that's comfortable for you. And then whenever you're ready, you can begin your argument. You have 20 minutes to start. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. My name is Mitra Medizada, and I represent the respondents, Access Independent Health Services, and Dr. Katherine Eccleston. And I'm here today with local counsel, Christina Sanborn. The state is asking the court for extraordinary relief before the district court has even had the opportunity to fully consider the devastating harms that this ban will cause. Granting a supervisory writ here and vacating the injunction will be at odds with this court's practice of granting such writs rarely, cautiously, and only when immediate intervention is necessary. To the, On the issue of irreparable harm, is, is the clinic still operating in North Dakota? No, Your Honor. The clinic is operating in Minnesota. However, the clinic brought this claim on behalf of their patients, and so their patients in North Dakota are still at risk of harm. I didn't hear you. Pardon? Oh, so I said the clinic is operating in Minnesota, but because the clinic brought the claims on behalf of their patients, patients in North Dakota are still at risk from this law. This ban is one of the most extreme and dangerous laws in the nation. It is far more extreme than the bans on abortion which North Dakota previously had in place, which always provided exceptions to allow care in the event that a person's life was at risk. This law has no such exceptions. It makes it a felony punishable by up to five years in prison to provide an abortion without any exception. So even when a person's life or health is at risk, or when there is no possibility of fetal survival, it would be a felony for a physician to treat that patient. Such an extreme law does not further any state interest, and the district court correctly found that the statute does not survive even under the rational basis standard. This, the um, assistant attorney general argues that you didn't make that argument, the rational basis argument. Yes, Your Honor. So we argued that the law violates the Constitution, and the rational basis standard is one of the tests that courts use to determine the constitutionality of a law. While we maintain that there is a fundamental right to abortion and that strict scrutiny is the appropriate standard, the district court was absolutely correct in finding that it did not need to reach that question because this law is so extreme and so unrelated to any state interest that it fails even under rational basis review. The, the statute at issue here is a criminal statute that applies to the doctors. 
Have you cited any cases where a statute fails rational basis because it's too harshly punitive? You, you cited this, the sanctions here, or or is over-inclusive such that it, it covers some perhaps blameless conduct? So this is a unique statute, and I'm not aware of another situation where a statute is criminalizing one person's conduct, where that person's conduct is necessary to save a third party's life. Um, however, while there are very few states that have similar affirm affirmative defenses in their abortion bans, Idaho is one such state. And in a recent case in the U.S. District Court for the District of Idaho, um, the District Court did note that affirmative defenses are a stronger deterrent um, than exceptions, and that having an affirmative defense rather than, a, uh, rather than an exception in the law, quote, compounds the deterrent effect. Do you agree that the state has a legitimate interest here? I agree that the state has an interest in furthering life, but I don't agree that this statute furthers that interest. Again, this is a law that would, viol that would prevent people from being able to get care even when the fetus or embryo is not going to survive. I mean, we're talking about health conditions like an ectopic pregnancy, which is a life-threatening medical emergency where uh, an embryo is growing outside of a person's uterus. That's not a viable pregnancy that can continue to grow into a healthy child. Um, so the only treatment that's really available in that situation is to save the life of the pregnant person by terminating the pregnancy. And a law that says it's a crime to intervene, even in that situation, is not related to any state interest. How, how will the state find out about abortions that are performed? Is there a reporting requirement in this statute? There is not in this particular statute, although I don't know how this would interplay with some of the other statutes that are on the books. Um, but I imagine that there are many other ways that physicians would feel concerned that the state might find out that a patient or a patient's family could report them, that other uh, people at the hospital who disagree with their decision could report them. So I think there is a legitimate fear that physicians would have that if they are intervening in a medical emergency, someone is going to question their actions, and they may need to be prepared to prove in court uh, why they performed an abortion. So we've followed the approach of Washington versus Glucksburg on at least a couple of occasions in identifying standards for recognizing implied or unenumerated rights. So I wonder if, if you think the standard under Article I, Section 1 is the same as in a substantive due process type of a claim. And if not, what standards should we look to to decide what, what rights are protected by those broad provisions? That's a good question, Your Honor. And I don't think the court actually needs to reach that question in order to determine that this law is unconstitutional. Um, as I've said, it fails even under rational basis. And so at this point, there's no need to reach the question of what the scope of fundamental rights protected by Article I, Section 1 encompasses. Fast-tracking review of this abortion law when the district court has not had an opportunity to make its findings of fact and after the state has presented no evidence whatsoever in support of its position is completely unnecessary and does a disservice to the many people whose lives and livelihood will be turned upside down by the law. And it kind of goes back to my questions I was talking with Mr. Sazine about what is our process or what should our process be if, if this is purely a legal question do the other FM asphalt factors matter? I believe that they do matter, Your Honor, and there's precedent from this court saying that irreparable harm certainly matters when determining whether it's appropriate to grant a preliminary injunction. Even on a legal question? Uh, yes, I believe so. Moreover, I understand that this, there is a legal question before the court. I think there are also factual questions that need to be addressed and analyzed by the district court, but regardless, a preliminary injunction is not normally appealable. So to the extent that the Attorney General is trying to use this proceeding to get a review on the merits, that's not really a proper use of a supervisory writ. Supervisory writs have been used where there's a showing that there's a need for immediate relief that can't wait until the conclusion of the litigation. If we're talking about addressing a legal question, that legal question will still be live in a few months once we've had an opportunity to fully brief and introduce evidence before the district court. And in fact, this court will be in a better position to analyze that legal question once it has the district court's findings of fact and once it has more fully developed evidence and arguments from the parties. On, on the fact development, Justice Bandwell asked if the clinic in Fargo was still operating and you said it was in Moorhead. 
Is there anything in the record suggesting or, or showing that uh, abortion, such as terminating ectopic, ectopic. thank you, yeah. pregnancies are being performed outside of that clinic in hospitals elsewhere in the state? We're still at the preliminary injunction phase, so of course we have not introduced the full evidence that we intend to introduce throughout the course of the case. But I will say nationally, pregnancy complications and pregnancy loss are uh, pretty common, um, and things like an ectopic pregnancy um, or a miscarriage um, or preterm rupture of membranes, those are things that happen all the time in pregnancy, unfortunately, uh, even in wanted pregnancies. And so because those are common conditions, they are happening in North Dakota as well. Vacating the preliminary injunction would cause catastrophic harm to patients, physicians, hospitals, and the entire healthcare industry. It would force physicians to delay emergency medical care to any pregnant patient, forcing physicians to, or forcing patients rather, to endure unnecessary medical risks and placing an incredible burden on physicians who are simply trying to provide their patients with common sense medical care during an emergency. The law would also have untold consequences on other players in the healthcare industry, including hospitals and insurance companies, by delaying access to necessary care and increasing the cost and complexity of care that patients will require. The limited affirmative defenses which the legislator included in the statute put an unreasonable burden on doctors to prove by a preponderance of the evidence that every procedure they provide in an emergency comports with the law. But the law is untethered from any understanding of how medicine is actually practiced and flies in the face of fundamental principles of medical ethics. Forcing a patient to wait to receive treatment can lead to the need for more expensive, more complex, and riskier care. And it can have serious complications, including loss of fertility and death. And it creates an impossible conflict for doctors by criminalizing medical procedures which they are ethically obligated to provide to their patients. Doctors are required to prioritize the patient's welfare, but by setting up a conflict between what's best for the patient and the doctor's own risk of losing their liberty and license, this law makes it very difficult for them to do so. Would this law preclude an action for malpractice if they fail to perform some procedure that would save the life of the mother or is it her? keep her from being injured? That's a good question, Your Honor, and I don't know the answer to that. But I think that's the sort of fact-finding that what the district court needs to get into before we're really ready to have this statute's constitutionality reviewed by this court on appeal. So we don't know if a doctor in, in fear of this law could be set up for a malpractice claim by not performing some procedure. Uh, that's correct. I don't know at this time. There is no reason that a patient should have to undergo physical and psychological torture during a pregnancy loss because the law has tied their doctor's hands. And moreover, tying a doctor's hands in this way serves no state interest. Imagine a patient who comes into Sanford Medical Center at 18 weeks of pregnancy, so weeks prior to fetal viability, and her water has already broken. At that point, the chance of the fetus surviving would be almost non-existent. That patient needs immediate medical attention um, to avoid a host of serious health consequences, including infection, sepsis, loss of fertility, and death, and to ensure that she can return home to her family and existing children. Now imagine that the patient's doctor tells her that there's a treatment available that will save her life and preserve her ability to have children but the doctor can't provide it because it would be a felony to do so. This law would prevent the access to care in that situation. Is there a plaintiff represented for that scenario in this case? There is not a direct plaintiff, Your Honor, but uh, the plaintiffs in the case brought this on behalf of their patients, who are many of whom are pregnant North Dakotans who are at risk of being harmed if this law goes into effect, and they are in North Dakota and have a pregnancy complication and are not able to get care. The district court conducted a full analysis of the statute under both the rational basis standard and strict scrutiny and correctly found that plaintiffs are likely to succeed in showing that the law is unconstitutional under any standard of review. Because plaintiffs are likely to succeed, 
even under the rational basis standard, the court does not need to reach the question of whether the state constitution protects the right to abortion in order to uphold the preliminary injunction. The district court correctly found that plaintiffs are likely to succeed on their claim that a state law which prohibits abortion, even when a person's life is at risk, does not serve a state interest. In fact, in his dissent in Roe v. Wade, Justice Rehnquist noted that if a statute were to prohibit an abortion, even where a person's life is at risk, he would, quote, have little doubt that such a statute would lack a rational relation to a valid state objective. And in his concurrence in Dobbs, Justice Kavanaugh described Justice Rehnquist's, Justice Rehnquist's dissent as stating that exceptions to allow for abortions where a patient's life is at risk would be, quote, constitutionally required. So what's the constitutional significance between an affirmative defense and an exception? An affirmative defense has a much stronger chilling effect. It requires a physician to commit a felony in order to treat a patient, which is, I think, naturally going to lead to additional delays and hesitation as people are going to be more likely or more likely to wait or hesitate if they know that what they are doing is illegal than they would be if there were a well-defined exception which clarified when they can provide care without breaking the law. It, un, under that circumstance, one of the, one of the uh, affirmative defenses is uh, rape or incest. Would that have to be proven in a court of law before a doctor could perform the abortion and use that as an affirmative defense? I mean, how, how does a doctor know that by, based on the report of the person who came in? That's an excellent point, Justice McEvers. It, because it's an affirmative defense, it does place the burden on the physician to prove that their conduct fell within that defense. And as you said, it's very difficult to imagine how a physician would prove that something happened when they weren't present uh, when the underlying incident occurred. And, and by the time a criminal action might play out, it, the pregnancy could be over. Yes. That's correct. As the district court correctly found, structuring the ban so that it only has affirmative defenses creates a chilling effect. The affirmative defenses place the physician in an untenable situation where regardless of how necessary medical intervention is, the physician will be committing a felony if she provides an abortion. If she is charged with a felony, the statute then places the burden on the physician to prove to a jury of her peers by a preponderance of the evidence that such care was necessary. Given that an abortion restriction must at least allow exceptions for life-saving medical care, it was hardly an abuse of discretion for the district court here to find that this law, which prevents people from being able to access that care, likely violates the Constitution. In my research, uh, in addition to the cases found in the brief, it's, it seems that laws fail rational basis scrutiny primarily when they're directed out of animus, and that's Cleburne and Romer versus Evans and some of those, politically targeted and disfavored group, or if they're basically rank economic protectionism. I haven't found examples beyond those two that would cover the situation you've brought to us. Can you give me any help there? Yes, Your Honor. Um, so you're correct that there are a lot of laws finding, or a lot of cases finding that animus toward a particular group is a factor in the rational basis analysis. But rational basis review is not limited to those scenarios. As Hoffberg explains when it goes through the different standards of scrutiny, rational basis requires that any health or economic regulation be rationally tied to a legitimate state interest. And again, I don't see how this is when we're talking about a law that is going to keep people from getting health care, even when their life is on the line. But if you concede the state has a legitimate interest in human life prior to birth, we have competing interests here, and it seems like that might be a legislative determination to balance interests against each other, isn't it? So, no, Your Honor, I don't think that it is appropriate to balance those interests in the way that this law is doing so. While I do think the state has some interest in protecting fetal life, I don't think that interest is served by a statute that prohibits abortions where there's no possibility of fetal survival. At that point, we're talking about a law that only prohibits pregnant people from getting care when it is their life that's on the line and the fetus has no possibility of surviving. I would also note that the people of North Dakota had the opportunity to vote in 2014 on whether they wanted to grant constitutional rights to fetuses and overwhelmingly declined to do so. So balancing the rights of an unborn fetus or embryo against the rights of a person. Um, when doing that, that should factor, the will of the voters should be taken into account. 
Finally, I'll just briefly address strict scrutiny. The district court also did not abuse its discretion in finding that the statute likely fails under strict scrutiny. There are strong reasons to find that the state constitution protects the right to bodily autonomy, which includes the right to get an abortion, as fundamental. This court has repeatedly interpreted the state constitution as being more protective of rights than the federal. And of course, the state constitution is written differently than the federal constitution, uses broader language for individual liberties, and places the protection of those liberties at the beginning of the constitution. Do you agree with the Assistant Attorney General that the, the uh, 1984 amendment to the Constitution has no bearing on this? I do not agree with that, Your Honor. I think that the voters in 1984, by changing the word men to individuals, indicated that they wanted to recognize that although the rights of women were not fully realized when the Constitution was adopted in 1889, those rights should be recognized by the government now. Um, they should be entitled to the same protections for individual liberty as people of any other And should gender. we be looking at liberties or rights at the time of the amendment to the Constitution, or should we be going back and applying um, the rights granted at statehood? I think looking at the liberties as they existed in 1984 certainly makes sense in light of the electorate's decision to amend that portion of the Constitution. So at that time, then, the that would have been within the period of time where an abortion was a legal action in the state and across the nation. That's correct, Your Honor. I would also note that many other states with nearly identical language and nearly identical protections for individual liberty in their own state constitutions have already found that that protects the right to get an abortion. There is nothing more sacred or more in keeping with the purpose of the North Dakota Constitution than for it to protect the most personal and significant of decisions that impact one's bodily integrity, medical decision making, and life's course. The ability to make these types of fundamental decisions forms the bedrock of liberty, and it cannot be said that the North Dakota Constitution contains no such protections for North Dakota citizens. Council, thank you for your argument this morning. Mr. Sagsveen, you have nine minutes and 33 seconds remaining. Please feel free to adjust the podium to a height that's comfortable for you, and then when you're ready, begin your rebuttal argument. Mr. Sagsveen, I first want to apologize by not addressing you by your correct title. You are the Solicitor General, and I apologize for that oversight on my part. No apology necessary, necessary Your Honor. Um, so actually, I want to address the first issue I want to address is your, is your question, Justice McEver, is about malpractice. And I think your question was whether or not the, this law would impact a physician's um, practice in the extent to which uh, their malpractice coverage might might um, be involved or considered in this decision. I, th I think counsel's answer was that she didn't know whether it would or it would. And I think that's that's part of the problem with a facial challenge is, is that you have a blanket challenge regarding to the law under all circumstances, and you assume it applies equally to everyone. The fact of the matter is that counsel just agreed that she didn't know how it would be applied or how it would be considered in in, in the context of, of your question. And so I, I think you have to be very careful in, in, the, in these facial challenge scenarios to issue such a blanket decision regarding the law. There was also some, there's also been significant discussion in the briefing in this case back and forth about whether it constitutes a ban or whether, whether there are individual exceptions in this case. And both the district court and the respondent have, have, thought, have wavered on their commitment to that issue. They call it a ban, but they also recognize that there are exceptions. The fact of the matter is that the law does provide exceptions in the context or the form of affirmative defenses. It's true that it doesn't use, expressly use the word exception in the statute, but it also but it also has limitations on its application based upon the definition of, of abortion itself. There's an intentional knowing requirement, and it includes situations where the procedure that's conducted may not constitute an abortion. The, but the language of the statute 
says specifically, the term does not include an act with intent to increase the probability of a live birth, and it goes on to provide some additional circumstances. By use of the word, by use of the phrase does not include, that, that list should not be considered as exclusive. Therefore, the what does not constitute abortion could be, in addition, there could be additional procedures that fall into that category that would not be considered an abortion. The state has argued, also argued in its brief that if even if you removed affirmative defenses from the statute and replaced it with exceptions, that doesn't necessarily create a different scenario where a, a prosecutor would be confronted with a situation where they have prosecutorial discretion to determine whether or not abortion has taken place that violates the statute. But it shifts the burden of proof. It does shift the burden of proof regarding that. So if it was an exception rather than an affirmative defense, it's something, or even a defense, the states would have to prove that the, that the doctor didn't do it under those circumstances. It does shift the burden on, on that defense, Justice McEvers, but it also provides a lesser standard of proof, preponderance of the evidence standard for that physician to prove that defense. And the state has argued in its brief, if, if affirmative defenses weren't considered a benefit to physicians under a variety, a variety of circumstances, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be there. They're there to benefit a physician. Well, not only does it shift the burden of proof, but it's a different burden of proof, as you just mentioned, under the affirmative defense, you're saying it's preponderance, but if the state has to prove that the defense doesn't exist, that's proof beyond a reasonable doubt, is it not? I think the way that the burden shifting statute works is that the state, the state doesn't need, doesn't have to disprove that defense, and it is up to the defendant to prove the defense by preponderance of the evidence standard. But if it was a defense instead of an affirmative defense, it would be the opposite. Or an exception instead of a defense. The state would have to prove, if it was an exception, the state would have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that an exception does not exist, correct? Or would that burden rest on the defendant? I mean, the defendant wouldn't have the reasonable, the same burden that the prosecutor has, but I understand the question that you're being posed, but I do think that the inclusion of affirmative defenses does provide a benefit, and that they do contemplate exceptions to the statute. There was also, there was also a question posed regarding rational basis review and the extent to which that specific argument was raised by the respondents in their briefing to the district court. And the response was somewhat conclusory in that the respondents said, we argued that the law 12.131-12 violates the Constitution. I don't think there was a direct answer to the question. The fact of the matter is, in the complaint, the plaintiffs argued that the law violates the Constitution, and in their briefing argued that the law doesn't satisfy strict scrutiny. There was no additional argument to respond to. Well, doesn't the district court have to apply the law whether it's argued or not? If this is a question of law, doesn't the district court have to correctly apply the law regardless of whether the correct law is argued? But we're talking about the, in the context of our preliminary injunction standard where the respondent, Red River, has a high burden to make. If they don't make the argument, I don't think it should, I don't think it should be assumed or concluded that they've made the argument, that they've made their burden of proof. The district court is not a litigant that is there to argue this, make this argument for them. That's why the respondent has adopted this argument because it certainly benefits them, but they didn't make the argument at the district court. They didn't meet their standard of burden of proof. The district court incorrectly shifted that burden of proof by saying, well, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this analysis, even though it wasn't done. I'm going to, I'm going to fulfill that burden of proof by the respondent, by Red River, and now that it, now state, I'm going to shift that burden to you. That's not how preliminary injunctions work. That's not how this court has applied that standard. 
the district court improperly shifted the standard to the, the, the respondents. Is it fair to say, Mr. Sagazine, that uh, the plaintiff's uh, position is that there's a basic right to abortion, uh, and your position is there's no basic right to abortion except as provided by law? That is, that is a fair assessment of the state's position as provided by the, the legislature. The Constitution does not provide a fundamental right to an abortion under the Due Process Clause. The state has provided, uh, the state legislature has provided, has enacted laws that provides situations where abortion is allowed. In this case, 12.1-31-12 does not violate the Constitution and, is, and should be upheld by, this, by the district court. Why shouldn't we let this go to appeal rather than issue a writ, consider it on a writ? In other words, let the litigation play out as normally litigation does and then consider these issues on appeal. I think that there's a, there's a significant issue at, at stake here, two significant issues. One is the content of the law, as, as a, how the importance of the law from a legislative perspective, but also... It's a separation of powers issue. We're, we're dealing with a situation where the district court has, has applied an incorrect test, this, has applied this court's incorrect test incorrectly in anticipation of a decision and shifted the burden to the state to prove that which Red River has not proven. The situation that we're, that we're dealing with is the district court has essentially expressed his opinion through his through his through his order that it doesn't that the district court doesn't like this statute and doesn't want it enacted. That's inconsistent with this court's rules, and it's really inconsistent with the separation of powers. Was there any discussion below about certifying this question? Under forty seven point one, it seems the district court could have certified this question to us. There was no discussion below regarding that point, but you are correct. The district court could certify that question. Mr. Sagsbein, thank you for your argument this morning. Council, thank you both for your arguments this morning. This case will be taken under advisement, as all cases are. This court will be adjourned until 1045 a.m. this morning.